one of the, th- one of the things that I enjoy about City Light Church, right, is the fact that we are multicultural. And because we're multicultural, there always offers, there's, there's opportunities always being offered to introduce, right, my, 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 my white brethren and sisters and my, my, my other minority brothers and sisters into the world of black culture, right? Right? So, so, so Mother Bird has seen Thin Line Between Love and Hate. None of y'all have probably seen it, right? Yeah, so, so Thin Line Between Love and Hate, 1996, uh, Martin Lawrence, Lynn Whitfield. Um, it is a, a movie, uh, pretty much that is black, black culture, period, all right? It, it is, it is black culture personified. And you have to understand in the 90s, right? In the 90s and the late 80s, you know, black folk was just happy to have any movie, right? So, so like if a movie was made and it was starring black people directed by black folks, black folks would go see it. it. Didn't matter if the movie was that good or not. We was going to see it. I mean, for Pete's sake, we showed up for Tyler Perry movies, right? And we, and we, and we, we paid, we paid all the money. We bought all the tickets. We wanted to see, you know, Tyler Perry directing a movie. We wanted to see that, right? So, so black folks didn't always have movies like Black Panther, you know, just really fantastic movies with big budgets. No, we had like Martin Lawrence directing movies and we went to see those movies. Thin Line Between Love and Hate is one of those movies. And in a thin line between love and hate, it's about this playboy. And this playboy is, 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 you know, he's dating all these different women and he comes across this particular woman who seems, according to the world standards, to have it all. She is bright. She is uh, brilliant. She is wealthy. She is beautiful. She is sweet, nice. Um, she, she seems to just um, do anything in anything and everything that someone who would who would be looking for a good woman could possibly ask of them right and so and so this playboy who's played by Martin Lawrence and you figure that out later how Martin Lawrence ends up being a playboy but this playboy being played by Martin Lawrence he actually dates this girl and he ends up doing this girl very very wrong and and so this girl who was just showing so much love to him right all of a sudden flips almost like a switch and she goes from loving him to like deeply despising him in such a way that it is dangerous to him right and it's and 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 she ends up threatening not only his livelihood not only his life but she ends up threatening those that he cares about the lives of those that he cares about as well and and, and what you notice is that it only it only kind of takes this this subtle decision or this subtle crossing, so to speak, of this woman for her love to go to complete hatred. And it's kind of like us. It only takes this, this subtle crossing for us to go from, from love to complete and total hatred. Now, now God is the one doing the crossing and God isn't a playboy. God is righteous in all of his dealings and all of his affairs and all of his activity, but we aren't righteous in all of our dealings and all of our affairs and all of our activities. And so we are lovers of God until God crosses us with a righteous act or a righteous posture that we aren't feeling. And then we become very hateful towards him. Very hateful towards him. As we see in this text, as we see, as we've been reading through John, deathly hatred, deathly hateful rather towards him. We look to kill him because he's crossed us in a righteous way. And that righteous way doesn't suit our preferences. That righteous way doesn't suit our ambition. That righteous way doesn't suit our will. We look to kill God. We look to knock him off. We look to get rid of him. We look to do whatever we possibly can to ensure that he has no stake 
and no claim over our lives. And so that's what this text is about. This text is about God crossing man. Except he's, he's, he's using, he's using his people to do the crossing. And thus, the rest of the world turns their hatred towards his people. So I want to talk a little bit about God. I want to talk a little bit about Jesus because I think if we just unpack why the world despises Jesus, I think it will become very clear to us why the world despises us. I think if we understand that, then it becomes clear why the world despises us. And I want to talk a little bit about the world despising us, but I want to spend the majority of my time this morning talking about why the world in particular despises Jesus. Jesus' words in verse 18 through 25 serve as preparation for the saints, serves as preparation for the disciples. It serves as preparation for his departure. He's prepared them in a bunch of different ways. He's prepared them, we've talked about in chapter 14, by giving them hope that they need in order to survive, in order to keep going. After he leaves, he tells them that there is a place he's preparing for them, and that and that solidifies them or that sustain that is expected to sustain them as they come against conflict and as they come against hatefulness and as they come against persecution. He tells them that, hey, I'm sending my spirit back to you, and that is the power that they need in addition to the hope to keep them and to sustain them. But now he shares news with them that is supposed to, again, prepare them for the road ahead. For many believers, the reality that we should expect to be hated by the world seems to be one of the most shocking realities concerning the Christian life. Most of us don't necessarily believe that we should expect to be hated by the world. But to ask that question or to ask the question, should we be hated? Or even to ask another question, who or why does anybody hate Jesus is to miss the point of Jesus in all of the Gospels entirely. Throughout the book of John, we see Jesus establishing his, establishing his ministry in a, in the world and in ways that infuriate the world. As he goes about, he's setting up his ministry and as he's setting up his ministry, he is rocking the world. He is crossing the world in a way that would move them from loving him for all of the good deeds and all the good acts, healing, um, blessing them in such a way that they have abundance in food and, 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 and resources, resurrecting people from the grave, moving them from loving him for those reasons to actually despising him for others. In John 7, we see the Pharisees seeking to arrest and destroy Jesus because of his testimony, the testimony that he was bearing. In John chapter 7, he said, I'm sorry, in John chapter 8, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the scripture continues on saying that they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In John chapter 10, when Jesus declares, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who is giving them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. I and the father are one. And upon those words, the scripture continues on saying that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. In fact, we hear these words in 1 John chapter 3. We hear these words. Do not be despi- uh, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
Don't be surprised by that. Don't be shocked by that. In fact, what, what, what John does in that text in 1 John chapter 3 is he precedes those words by talking about Cain and Abel. And he says that, he says that Cain, because Abel's sacrifice was deemed, was deemed righteous by God, and Cain's sacrifice was deemed unrighteous, that Cain literally murdered his brother. Because his sacrifice was seen as evil, his works were seen as evil, he literally took his uh, ferocity or he took his anger and his, and his, and his, and his malice rather, he took it out on his brother because he said, Oh, you think you're better than me because God accepted yours and he didn't accept mine. And so he killed him. And then right after that, John says, So don't be surprised that the world hates you. What is he saying? He's saying that there is a righteous one that God has deemed righteous which is the people of God that have, by faith, trusted Christ for salvation, then there is an unrighteous one. And that unrighteous one will turn their anger and their fury towards those that have been deemed righteous. Does that make sense? And so he says, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Jesus was hated. And if we are truly to follow him, we should not be at all surprised if oftentimes we are hated as well, opposed as well. In fact, what is most interesting about Jesus is not that he was simply despised just by the irreligious or the non-religious, the pagan crowds who live distant from the faith, but he was also despised by the religious community as well. In fact, most of his trouble when you read throughout the New Testament and you read through the Gospels, most of his trouble was brought about by the religious community hating him. Don't miss the fact that Jesus was led to the cross. Not just simply by the Romans, but by the Jews as well. Not simply by the non-religious and the pagan, but by the religious. Those who claim the name of God. And one can argue quite effectively that it was more so the Jews that were responsible for his death versus the Romans. Are you tracking with that? In other words, the religious crowd was far more responsible for Jesus' death, one could argue, than the non-religious. That is critical in understanding how Christ's associated hatred works. See, the life that he calls us to can infuriate the religious and it can infuriate the non-religious alike. And that also tells us that when we talk about the world itself, that worldliness is not just a concept reserved for irreligious people. You know, sometimes that's what we think worldliness is. Worldliness is the cigarette smoker. Worldliness is the, 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 the guy that goes to the bars. Or worldliness is the, 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 the woman who is practicing promiscuity. But worldliness is not just for irreligious people, people that are not regarding God in any shape, form, or fashion. Worldliness, rather, is a concept that can be easily applied to religious people because at the end of the day, worldliness can be simply defined as seeking to live life in absence of Jesus' rule in your life. So this opposition of the world is not simply coming from the normal crowd that we think is coming from. This opposition from the world is coming oftentimes from people on the inside of churches as well as the outside of churches. 
Are you tracking with this? The self-righteous as well as the unrighteous. Here's an interesting question. Why does it seem that so many people who refuse to follow Jesus seem to also simultaneously love Jesus or at least admire Jesus? Because, see, here's the thing. You get that on both the inside and the outside. You get people that claim to love God, right? And yet it seems like it's so difficult or rather they seem like they have no desire whatsoever to follow God. And that happens on inside and outside of churches, okay? People that claim to love God, and and yet when you look at their lives, it seems like they have no interest in following him. And that lack of interest may present itself in in different ways. may present itself with with rank, rank immorality and promiscuity, or it may present itself with rank arrogance and rank self-righteousness. But it does present itself as no desire whatsoever to follow the true God. And you say, how does that happen? Well, we can establish this morning at least three reasons. One is one is distance, or rather, let's talk about two reasons, because death and distance is pretty much the same thing. But distance and depth, distance and depth, all right? So let's talk about distance. Abraham Lincoln, in March of the 18, uh, 1861, when Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States and one of its most loved and, 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 and most, most famous of presidents first took office, the, the assumption would be that he was loved dearly, but that would not be true. He was not loved dearly. As a matter of fact, less than 40% of America voted him in. He won by less than 40% of popular vote. He was snuck into the White House in the dark of the night in disguise during, uh, when he first entered into the White House. He was not popular. One of his commanding generals actually called him the original gorilla because he wasn't, to him, wasn't necessarily um, easy on the eyes and neither was he very smart in their opinion. Many people even hated his speeches. For example, concerning one of his speeches, one Chicago Times newspaper writer wrote, the cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads, as Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln reads, the silly, flat, dishwatery utterances of a man who has to be pointed out to intelligent, to intelligent foreigners as the president of the United States. I'll read that again because it wasn't Abe Lincoln uh, that he was referring to, but it was all the readers. So I'll read that again. The cheek of every American must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, dishwatery utterances of a man who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the president of the United States. He was talking about the Gettysburg Address. We teach that in our schools now. As classic American literature. That's, Abraham Lincoln was not popular in his day. Obviously due to the matters regarding the Civil War and the issue of slavery, the South had very little love for him. But what most people don't really recognize is that the North didn't have a whole lot of love for him either. And yet here he is loved now. What changed? What changed? Well, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in Ford's Theater. That rocked the nation and caused many to see him through a more compassionate and reasonable lens. But often, but oftentimes it's not just simply death that changes, but it's distance. The further we get away from this person, the more we begin to revere him. The same thing happened to Martin Luther King, as we've discussed before. 
in previous messages. In 1966, less than two years away from Dr. King being assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, when the Gallup poll took up opinion of uh, of people's opinions regarding Dr. King, 63% of Americans had an unfavorable opinion of him. 63%. 54% said that they would not march or protest if they were in the same position as African Americans. Two months later, in, in October of 1966, 85% of white Americans said that the civil rights demonstration hurt African Americans more than they helped them. And that they thought that Martin Luther King in particular had hurt the cause of civil rights. His accomplishments for, 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 for all of America can be viewed in historical context now. But it's also because there's distance between when he was here versus when he wasn't. And the further we get from a person, the more we begin to see them in favorable lights. The further we get away from being face-to-face with these controversial figures, the more we begin to see them and the easier it begins to, uh, the easier it becomes for us to say we would agree with them if we were present with them in that day and age. It begins easy, it becomes easier for us to say, yeah, if I was there, I wouldn't have been like everybody else. I would, I would have marched right along with him. I would have been right alongside him. Matthew 23, it talks about the prophets and it talks about the Pharisees and how, how the Pharisees would go to the prophets, the Old Testament prophets' tombs and that they would decorate them and dress them up very nicely because, because they were honoring them or at least showing, uh, uh, perceive, um, I guess acting like they were showing honor to the prophets of old. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced? to hell. Jesus says, you're decorating these tombs. You're celebrating. You're talking about you would never kill the prophets if you were there like your fathers did. And Jesus' point is that you claim to honor and you claim to love the prophets, but the only reason that is the case is because the prophets aren't there with you. You aren't face to face with them. You don't have to heed their warnings and their instruction. If they were here and they were calling you to the kind of repentance that they called your forefathers to, you would have done the same thing to them that your forefathers did. You would kill them. You would replace your ornaments and your decorations with knives and swords. So what is Jesus' proof for this position? Well, the proof is him and his disciples. Like their forefathers before them with God's prophets, now they were again staring directly at the sinner and the carrier of truth, the mouthpiece of God the Father. And instead of embracing him, honoring him, celebrating him, they were doing what? Plotting his death. Which brings me to my third reason that people can or my second reason, rather, that people can claim to be fans of Christ while remaining absent of general or genuine submission to Christ. A lack of death concerning what he's about and what he stands for and what he has said. Many fans of Jesus admire him based on limited knowledge. 
They don't come to embrace the whole Jesus. They come to embrace different shades and facets and sides of Jesus. For some, maybe it is the Jesus who is firm on aiding the poor and the needy. The one who tells us in Matthew 25 that, that those, those that are on the left depart from me. You curse it. Uh, you curse into the eternal fire prepared by the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. For others, maybe it is the Jesus to, who is firm on sexual immorality, the one who tells us, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in, uh, with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And yet for another group, maybe it is the Jesus who offers mercy upon mercy. The one who offers these words in John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What happens is that these different groups hear different things about Jesus. And they latch on to the thing that appeals them or appeals to them. And they reject the thing that they have no desire for, no passion for, no interest in. And so the people that are holding up the sexual immorality card, they'll hold it and they'll wave it in everybody's face. But when it comes to poverty and seeking seeking to help the need or seeking to help those that are in need and those that are poor and downtrodden, they'll reject that swiftly. Or the people that are holding up that poverty card that are saying, you're going to hell if you don't help the poor. When it comes to sexual immorality and God's standard as it relates to marriage, they'll reject that and they'll say, well, listen, that's, That's not my interest. That's not something that I have any interest in. Or the people that really have no interest in either one of those things, they'll just say grace, grace, mercy, mercy, right? And they won't try to, they won't try to look at any of those things. They have no interest in either. They just simply have interest in a God that says, do whatever you want to do. And there's room for you. And everybody's picking up these different ideals from God, picking up shades of Christ, right? And as long as they're picking up these shades, it allows them to love him, quote unquote. And what they do is that the shades they don't like, they fill in the gaps, right? And so they fill in the gaps, whatever whatever the natural instinct is, they fill in the gap that they have with that natural instinct. The capitalists will fill in the capitalist instincts. The socialists will fill in the socialist instincts. The sexually immoral will fill in the socially immoral instinct. And whatever instinct they have, they will take pieces from Christ and they'll fill it in, fill the rest in with whatever their natural instincts are driving them towards. And that keeps them loving Christ. But what ends up happening is that they are no longer worshiping Jesus of the Bible. They are worshiping a Jesus made and fashioned after their own image and likeness. But that's why they love him. So you ask, how is it that people can can consistently claim to love God and yet seem to have no interest in God? It's because they are formulating a God after their own image and their own likeness. When we begin to when we begin to dive into the depths of who Christ is, what we realize is that Christ is crossing all of us. That in some shape, some form, some fashion, he is rocking you. 
And in order to, in order to truly say, I love Jesus and I embrace Jesus, you have to be willing to embrace the rocking, the pushing, the prodding that the God of the universe is doing on you, imperfect man or imperfect woman. Does that make sense? And so it's this group that hates Jesus, hates God, because God is crossing them in ways that they aren't ready to be crossed, that turns their hatred towards the saints of God. Verse 19, it says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Say, why does the world hate the Christian? The world hates the Christian because the world loves its own and you are not of the world. The world also hates the Christian because you were chosen by God out of this world. So while it may appear on the surface to be bad news, to be, to receive this disdain from the world, from the system that exists outside of Christ, while it may appear to be bad news, the most important news is not the words spoken regarding the world, but it's the words spoken regarding Christ. Christ says that he has chosen you. Those are the most encouraging words, or those are the words that you must cling to in a world that is rapidly turning against the Christian. And when I say it's rapidly turning, I'm talking about just here, right? It's been turning all over the world in different times, in different seasons, in different ages. Different people will face the onslaught of the world's hatred more and less. In America, we're seeing it more now. I chose you out of the world, causing the world to direct its hate on you. Jesus assumes ownership for your place between his love and the world's hatred. This is the second time that he refers to the ideal of being chosen by him. In John chapter 15, John chapter 15, verse 13 or verse 16, it says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that you should, that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. The fact that he is, that he has rather chosen us to bear his love guarantees that we are chosen to bear the hatred of the world. Because the world can't hate Christ without hating those that are loved by Christ. That's tough news for us, right? But like I said, don't fix your heart on the attention of the world. Fix your heart on the love of Jesus. The fact that no matter what system comes against you, that you have one that no system's devices can stand against. He says in, in verse 20 that, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So he is choosing us, right? 
drawing us into his love, and because he is choosing us and drawing us into his love, it, it is guaranteed that he is also drawing us into, into the hatred of the world, okay, because they hate him. But he's not, he's not simply talking about hateful words. He moves from, from he, he, or he dives deeper into the ideal of hatred by discussing persecution. Real opposition because of our confession of faith. Again, talking about things getting tougher over here, understand that things have been tough in other places. People are dying for no other reason but because they claim the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The people are hiding in churches, having church in homes that they're smuggling in Bibles into certain areas of the world because it is outlawed for them to have a Bible. So people are smuggling into community, or or rather they're sneaking into community, and they're smuggling the Scriptures into their spaces. And so understand and value this moment that we've been given. Value it before persecution rises to the place of our other brothers and sisters where we have to sneak in our homes or smuggle in our Bibles, value it now. Does that make sense? Value this Sunday morning. Value the reading of Scripture. The opportunity to read it freely. The opportunity to sit at your desk at work and read God's Word. Value that. But should it come, should it arrive, And it arises in different levels. It's already arising and you already have opportunities to show or opportunities that if you step out, you will find, you will find out whether or not God is loved or God is hated. You'll find it out very quickly. There are opportunities there. And so he says in verse 20, remember that the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. You say, why, why, why should I expect persecution? Why should I expect suffering for the faith? He says, because I suffered. And if I suffered, then why why should you expect anything less? I was led to the cross. Why should you expect anything less? The servant is not greater than the master. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, once said about this text, we cannot expect, therefore, to receive honor and to wear a crown of gold where Jesus wore a crown of thorns. We can't expect to wear a crown of gold where Jesus wore a crown of thorns. We have to expect that there will be opposition to us standing for Christ and declaring the real Christ in the riches and the depths in which he has declared himself in Holy Scripture. Now, with that said, Let me say this. Let me offer a caveat to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus is aligning your persecution to his account and not to yours. And what I mean by that is that some people will claim that they're being persecuted for following Jesus, when the reality is is that they're not being persecuted for following Jesus, they're being persecuted for being morons. Are you tracking? Are you tracking? That Jesus was merciful and they'll be unmerciful and they'll say, well, I'm just being persecuted 
right? They'll be waving banners, insulting, insulting uh, LGBT community, saying God hates fags and things of that nature. Nonsense like that, right? And then, and then they'll say, well, I'm being persecuted. No, you're being a moron. Amen. There's a way, there's a way to speak to sin that still shows love and compassion towards the sinner. There's a way to speak to sin that still shows empathy for sin as a fellow sinner saved by grace and grace alone. Are you tracking with that? And so be sure that your persecution, be sure that your opposition, be sure that your animosity that you are receiving is coming as a result of you operating on the account of Christ and through the gospel of Christ and in the spirit of Christ and not on your own activity and not on your own volition. How are we loving when we, when, when we receive outpourings of animosity, we should ask ourselves, well, am I loving like Jesus? Am I extending grace like Jesus? Am I extending mercy like Jesus? Am I operating as one who has been surrounded and showered with matchless grace? Or am I operating as one that is extending the matchless grace to all who would kneel at my feet? When it comes to how you operate in the world, when it comes to how you engage in this world, listen, let no offense arise to those that you are operating amongst except the offense of the gospel. Let them not be offended by you. Let them be offended by the message. The message is offensive enough. It doesn't need your help. In verse 22, it says, if I had come, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So what's the source of the hatred of the world towards Jesus and ultimately towards Jesus's people? According to Jesus, there is no reason. It's simply that we want what we want. Our hearts are vicious towards God because of sin's corruption in them. And so when God tells us that we must sacrifice our heart's desires and we must or our heart must be redirected to desire that which he desires, which is ultimately and supremely him. Our heart turns hateful. They have no excuse as it relates to knowledge. God says, I've spoken. Right? And so even as you're engaging the world or engaging those in the world, what ends up happening oftentimes is that we will just kind of stop our ears as it relates to messages that that conflict with our ideas and with our values, won't we? Even though the word will say, yes, I honor the word. Yes, the word is this is. Yeah, I honor scripture. But wait a second. Wait a second. Can't we talk about this? Because this seems to I'm not sure about this part. Well, I'm not sure about that part either. I'm not sure about that part. And what we end up doing is rewriting the entire thing, don't we? Jesus says that I have spoken. They are, they are without excuse. My word is clear. Yes, it does press against your value system. Yes, it does press against your worldview. But it's because you're not God. That's, that's why it's pressing up against you. Because you're not God. He is. 
I would be nervous if I read the Bible and everything the Bible had for me, I agreed with. I would be very nervous. What kind of book is this? I'm so, I'm, I'm definitely not perfect. What kind of book is this that everything in there I agree with? This is a hoax. This ain't a real book. It's not a real God. It's a book about me. But if I read it and I find it pressing against me in certain areas, and causing me to question what I value, causing me to question what I esteem, that doesn't give me less confidence that it's written by God. It gives me more. Are you tracking? He says that not only has he spoken, but he's acted. He says they've seen the works. They've seen these things that I have done. And they're left without excuse. Romans 1 points to that too some, uh, in, in, a, in a way where it talks about that as we look at God's creative hand in creation, that we are left without excuse regarding the fact that there is a God. We can try to come up with crazy and zany excuses and say that aliens brought crystals and that's how all of creation happened, which, by the way, some scientists have said that, right? You know, it's like, well, okay, so, so we're not gonna, we're not gonna, we're not going to accept that God created heaven, but we will accept that aliens created earth. We, we're not gonna accept that God created earth, but we will accept that aliens created earth. You see how hard we try to push him out? He says, you can look at all of this. You can look at the signs, the signs that Jesus performed. You can look at the historical realities of the resurrection. You can look at the, you can look at the, 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 the manifested realities amongst his people and see changed lives. He says, I've spoken and I've shown, leaving those that hate me without a cause to hate me, without a reason to hate me. The world stands in judgment because his speech is clear. The world stands in judgment because his activity is clear. And so sometimes, and so sometimes you have to take that into consideration as you are engaging one, as you are engaging your fellow men and women. Does that make sense? There's only so much you can give. There's sometimes, there's sometimes that we want what we want so bad that there will never be enough evidence for us. And sometimes you have to understand that and know that and realize that and be willing to step back from the situation. Step back and say, all right, man, pray, praise God. Man, I'm praying for you. Please let me know if you got any more questions. Obviously, I'm always here and we'll have more conversations, I'm sure. But all right, man, I, I, I mean, I can't answer every question you got for me. You know, I mean, I've, I've answered as many as I can, I'm, but I can't, I can't just continue on just answering question after question after question after question and just kind of start running in circles. Let me leave you with this. How do we survive in, in this, in this, in this reality that the world, the world and its system does hate Jesus and thus the world and its system in all, in, in certain times, in certain seasons will hate you. How you survive in that? Remember your call to God. Remember that you are loved by God. That's what, that's what the first half of John chapter 15 is about, right? This, this overwhelming love that God has. This, 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 this call to abide in his love. And why, why do we need to abide in his love? Well, we need to abide in his love because we exist in a world that is hateful towards him. So we need to stay connected to the love of God. 
But we also need to stay connected to the reverent fear of God. The apostle said in Acts chapter 5 that, listen, when they were threatened with, stop speaking about Jesus, or we're going to arrest you, right? Hateful actions taken towards them for no other reason but because they named the name. They said, listen, we got to obey God. We can't obey man. And so there is reverent fear towards God where they say, listen, ultimately it is God who we fear more. Jesus says, don't fear the one that can destroy your body. Fear the one that can destroy both body and soul. But not only, not only destroy, but he defends the, he defends the one. He defends his advocates. He defends those that stand. He says, if, 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 if God before us, Paul says, as he is standing in defense of the faith, then what opposition can be against us ultimately? And so remember your God. Remember the call that your God has called you to. But also remember the call to the church of God. He says in chapter 15, verse 17, look there. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And then he immediately goes into the context about hate, if the world hates you. And what does that tell you? That tells you that how, how are you going to survive in a hateful world? By clinging to the church of God. Let me tell you something. The farther you are from the people of God, the easier it becomes to compromise in a hateful world. The more you lose the support of the church, the more you lose the brothers and sisters rallying behind you and telling you, man, keep going. Sister, keep going. I know it's hard at work. I know they got a bunch of different, I know they probably smash you when you mention Jesus, but that's okay. That's okay. God, God is looking. God is going to reward you for your faithful service, for your diligence to him. Keep going. We're praying for you. There's somebody there. Who knows? Who knows who's listening? The more, the farther you get away from that and you just stand on this isolated island of hatred, the easier it becomes to compromise it. You can't survive. So Jesus talks about us loving one another before he introduces the idea that the world is going to be hating us. We have to stay together if we're going to survive the onslaught of this world. Does that make sense? Because he sent us out. As sheep among wolves, he sent us out. We have to go. We have to go. But we don't go by ourselves. We go together. We disperse. But we're always together, even in our dispersion. Or dispersing. Does that make sense? Lastly, remember our call to the enemies of God. You've been called to God. You've been loved by him and you've been called, uh, you've been called to fear him with reverence. You've been called to the community of God. You've been called to love each other well and stick together. But you've also been called to the enemies of God. And that means the Bible says in Matthew, love your enemies. Pray for those that despitefully misuse you. Meaning that, yes, the world will have hatred towards you, but you never, never respond in kind. Part of, part of the reason why we can stir up more hatred is by treating the world like enemies to be opposed rather than souls to be one. 
They are not your opponents. They are our harvest. The Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, spiritual wickedness in high places, rulers of darkness. When you receive opposition in the world, it is not your, it is not your opportunity to retaliate in kind. It is your call to get on your knees and seek God's help and God's power to break the, the, the fallow or, or the, or the hard ground and the hard soil and the hearts and the rocky hearts of men and ask him to break it and cultivate it and soften it so that when you speak his words, they might receive it and respond. You must keep loving. Love is your weapon that you take to the battlefield, not hatred. So we've been called to love our enemies and we must love them well. Amen.